Thank you, Dr. Chabner and the organizers for having me. So as you heard, today I'll be discussing the new adjuvant model as a translational tool for drug and biomarker development in breast cancer. So here's the outline. Um, I'll first review some background about new adjuvant therapy for breast cancer. Specifically, we'll discuss the indications, the goals, some comparisons to adjuvant therapy, and also discuss the concept of pathologic complete response. Then move on to discuss the neoadjuvant therapy as a model for drug and biomarker development, including some discussion about upfront predictions of response, early measures of response, and optimal outcomes or endpoints to consider. So in terms of the indications for absolute, uh, the absolute indications for neoadjuvant therapy, there's actually very few of them, and those include inflammatory breast cancer, other T4 tumors such as involvement of the chest wall or the skin, or um, disease with significant lymph node involvement, so N2 or N3 disease. And then there are some relative indications as well, and that includes a large tumor to breast ratio in a patient desiring breast conserving therapy or otherwise known as a, a lumpectomy. And also more recently, there's been more evidence to consider using pre-op therapy to reduce the extent of axillary surgery in lymph node positive patients. So traditionally, the, the board answer had always been if a patient has lymph node involvement up front, um, then they should get a lymph node dissection no matter what but there's now more evidence that we should really give patients credit for what they achieve from pre-op therapy. So there's more and more use of sentinel lymph node biopsy after pre-op therapy, even in those with lymph node involvement up front. And I like to say that really new adjuvant therapy is something that you can consider whenever up front you can already figure out what the adjuvant therapy plan should be. Now, if you need the pathologic results at the time of surgery to know what the therapy should be, what the systemic therapy should be, then neoadjuvant would not be a good approach. In terms of the typical treatment sequence, just for review, so with adjuvant therapy, of course, the surgery happens first and the systemic therapy occurs after that, while with neoadjuvant treatment, at least some of the systemic therapy occurs before surgery. Now, I just want to review the goals of adjuvant therapy and how those relate to neoadjuvant therapy. So really, and for this, this isn't breast cancer specific. This really applies to all solid tumors. So the goal of adjuvant therapy is to improve survival by treating so-called occult micrometastatic disease. And there are a number of considerations um, when we decide if we should give systemic therapy or not. And that includes the underlying risk of recurrence, the absolute benefits of therapy, comorbid conditions, the side effects of treatment, patient preferences, and most importantly, tumor biology. But really, and patients ask this all the time, you can think of it that it's really a blind procedure in a way, right? Because the primary tumor is not there. And so patients ask all the time, how can I be sure if this is effective or not? And that's one reason that got me very interested in neoadjuvant therapy in the first place. So as far as the goal of neoadjuvant therapy, it's really all the same goals as adjuvant therapy except for it started earlier, and then there's a number of additional clinical and research benefits as well. So unlike adjuvant therapy, with neoadjuvant therapy, you can use it to downstage the tumor to help make breast surgery easier. So that would include increasing the rate of breast conserving surgery, perhaps converting someone with an inoperable tumor to an operable tumor, and also smaller lumpectomies as well. And as I discussed before, it can decrease the extent of axillary surgery. Also, most importantly, it allows the monitoring of tumor response, and this can greatly facilitate clinical investigations and novel drug development. So neoadjuvant trials compared to adjuvant trials can be much smaller, shorter, and less expensive. Um, it also improves risk assessment, and we'll get into this a, lo a lot more, but the outcome at the time of surgery can serve as a surrogate for long-term outcomes. And then lastly, and probably most importantly, it allows you to tailor therapy to individuals, so response-directed therapy because the tumor remains in place, and this can lead to both um, escalation and de-escalation treatment strategies depending on the response.
So in terms of which approach is better, this is a classic study that was done in this area, the NSABP B18 study, in which patients with localized breast cancer either receive surgery first followed by systemic chemotherapy or systemic chemotherapy first followed by surgery. And overall, both looking at overall survival and disease-free survival, the two groups did the same. And this is why when we speak to patients, we tell them that uh, in terms of long-term outcomes, either approach is the same, but there may be additional benefits to the pre-op approach when eligible. And these are additional results from the B18 study, showing not surprisingly that lumpectomy rates are higher when you use pre-op therapy. And this is despite the fact that personal choice plays a large role here as well. So you may convert many patients into a lumpectomy candidate who still may opt to have a mastectomy due to personal preference. And on the right, not surprisingly, you also see um, less lymph node involvement with pre-op therapy as well. Now in terms of the outcome at the time of surgery, so the, um, the outcome that's talked about the most is a pathologic complete response. And that's been defined differently over the years. Uh, the most conservative definitions and the ones that are um, advocated by the FDA are one that is defined as no invasive breast cancer in the breast or axilla with in situ disease being allowed. And those definitions are represented by the blue and yellow lines here. And as you can see, compared to the more liberal definitions below, um, they are more highly prognostic for long-term outcomes. So at least in breast cancer, the one agent that was initially approved based on pre-op therapy was pertuzumab. And this, these were the definitions that the FDA accepted for that approval. Now, in terms of PCRs at surrogate endpoint, these are some results from the FDA meta-analysis that was published a few years ago. First, here in the upper left, we see the, the odds of achieving a PCR based on the different clinical tumor subtypes. So in general, um, we see highest PCR rates in either triple negative tumors or HER2-positive hormone receptor negative tumors that are treated with trastuzumab. And we see the lowest rates of PATH-CR in hormone receptor positive HER2-negative tumors, particularly those that are lower grade. And based on the odds of achieving a PATH-CR, you can also relate that to how highly um, or not highly prognostic that is in terms of long-term outcomes. So it's felt and shown here on the upper two figures that uh, with either HER2-positive breast cancer or triple negative breast cancer, those are the subtypes where PATH-CR is most meaningful. So the red lines here are the group that achieved the PATH-CR and the blue lines are the group with residual disease. And you can see, and this is looking at event-free survival, you can see there very clearly that the PATH-CR group does significantly better. So for triple negative, it, was a, it has a ratio of 0.24 and for HER2-positive, 0.39. And this gets a little more complex when we consider hormone receptor positive disease, and that's shown here on the bottom. So on the far left is overall, so all hormone receptor positive HER2 negative patients. And you still do see there that even though rates of PATH-CR are not particularly high, um, as we see above, there's anywhere from 7 to 16% that it is still a good thing when you achieve a PATH-CR. Um, but it isn't, you know, it isn't the only endpoint that's important for them in part because adjuvant endocrine therapy um, plays such an important role for hormone receptor positive breast cancer. But what's interesting is when you take hormone receptor positive breast cancer and break it down by tumor grade. So the middle figure here is, is those ER positive patients with grade one or two tumors, while the figure to the right of that shows ER positive uh, tumors that are grade three. And with the grade three tumors, your more luminal B subtype, um, it almost ends up looking like the HER2 or triple negative curve. So um, you can argue that PATH-CR is um, a good endpoint to look at for high-grade ER-positive tumors, but it is not for lower-grade tumors. 
Um, in terms of the work that we've done here, so uh, a few years ago we started uh, our own meta-analysis where we looked at all of the published studies involving pre-op chemotherapy. Uh, while the FDA analysis had uh, focused on a set group of randomized uh, trials, we considered both cl clinical trials and retrospective studies as well. And our initial results were over 18,000 patients. Um, the FDA study was about 12,000. And in addition to looking at um, the role of PATH-CR, we tried to look at some other specific questions as well. And that includes um, looking at the roles that adjuvant therapy might play. And we found that PATH-CR is associated with improved long-term outcomes, whether or not additional adjuvant chemo is received. And we've updated this study. We now have over 27,000 patients, and we obtained individual patient-level data by extracting it from the studies using plot digitizer software. And we'll be presenting these updated results at the upcoming um, San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium as an um, oral um, presentation there. So unfortunately, I can't share those results today due to that. Uh, we also took a look here at um, outcomes in our own patients focusing on women 40 and under, and that's because this is a, a subgroup of patients that tends to have more aggressive breast cancer. So we looked at our own data to see if PATH-CR remains prognostic in this cohort, and we did find that that, that held true. So for those young women who achieved a PATH-CR, their five-year disease-free survival was 91%, while the group with residual disease had a five-year DFS of 60%. So now moving on to thinking a bit more about how this model can be used uh, for drug and biomarker development. So as I mentioned before, compared to adjuvant studies, pre-op trials are of course smaller. So we're talking about hundreds of patients, not thousands of patients. Um, the endpoint is also achieved much faster. The endpoint usually occurs at the time of uh, surgery while adjuvant studies are focused more on long-term outcomes. So your endpoint can be achieved in months instead of years. Then also this uh, approach compared to the adjuvant settings much better for biomarkers as well. The primary tumor remains in place, so there's ease of obtaining both tissue and blood as well. So this is just um, an example of a, a trial here where you can see, you know, you have your eligible patients at baseline and the tumor's in place, so you can obtain an upfront research biopsy. You also have upfront imaging if you want, and you can get baseline Bloods. And then this particular example includes a small window of opportunity study where one group gets randomized to a novel therapy first, and then that novel therapy is combined with a standard therapy. And again, as the tumor remains in place, uh, you can obtain an on-treatment biopsy as well, and you can follow circulating biomarkers throughout. And studies we've been involved with here in this setting have involved looking at circulating tumor DNA and circulating tumor cells. And then patients move on to surgery where if there is any residual disease left, you'd have access to that tissue as well for further analyses. And we can also use this to think about um, a few different questions. So we can use this model to think about who might be the best candidates for neoadjuvant therapy. We can also use it to think about, is there an early measure of response? Instead of having to wait until the time of a surgery or to wait until you see a clinical response or response on imaging, um, is there any other factors that could be looked at? And lastly, what is the optimal outcome? We've discussed PATH-CR quite a bit, but are there other endpoints that should be considered? So focusing on the who question first. So this was a study uh, we did a few years ago focusing on ER-positive breast cancer. So for ER-positive patients who are, um, who are eligible for neoadjuvant therapy, 
this a, a cl clinical conundrum in that they have two options. They, you could pursue chemotherapy or endocrine therapy. Um, and it's largely an understudied area as far as who should get what. So as background for some of the clinical trials we're working on in this area, we performed a meta-analysis of all randomized trials involving neoadjuvant endocrine therapy. And the figure here is the subset of those that directly compared endocrine therapy um, to cytotoxic chemotherapy. And as you can see, only a few trials have directly looked at this question, and the sample size was quite small overall, just with a total of 378 patients. But regardless, uh, we found that response rates and rates of breast-conserving therapy uh, were similar, whether it was with chemotherapy or endocrine therapy, and that, not surprisingly, toxicity was less so with endocrine therapy. But it remains somewhat unclear as far as who should actually get what. Um, so there has been some work in this area. So this was a study presented at San Antonio last year where um, th these investigators used the Oncotype DX recurrence score up front on the diagnostic biopsy. So typically this is a, a gene-based expression assay that helps us figure out it's both prognostic and, and predictive. So you get a re recurrence score as far as you know what, what is someone's risk of recurrence, and it's predictive as well in terms of the utility of chemotherapy. But this has been validated based on the surgical specimen, so for you know decisions about adjuvant therapy. So this was an approach where um, they used a, the, the uh, specimens from the NEOS study, and that was patients with T1C to T2 node-negative ER-positive tumors that received pre-op letrozole for 24 to 28 weeks. So they took some of those initial core biopsies and performed an oncotype score on that. And as you can see, those with a lower recurrence score were much more likely to respond to endocrine therapy, while those with a higher recurrence score um, were more likely to experience um, progressive disease. So this is not yet ready for prime time yet, but in, there's a few questions that remain about this. So one big one is, can you apply this to node-positive patients or not? Because majority of the ER-positive patients who we think about giving pre-op therapy to are the ones with lymph node involvement, and this was a study of node-negative patients. Another issue is the turnaround time. So typically, especially with insurance approvals, it may take a couple weeks to get Oncotype results back. And one advantage of pre-op therapy is that you can get started on it right away, so that's a concern here. And then an important question is, could perhaps could novel agents improve the endocrine sensitivity of patients with high scores, or does it remain that uh, every patient with a high oncotype will require chemotherapy? So I think there's a lot more work to be done in this area, and we'll certainly be hearing more in the future. Next, moving on to thinking about an early measure of response. So this was a study um, that looked at on-treatment biopsies as early as the, the two-week mark and assess changes in KI67 to see if that could predict endocrine sensitivity and relapse risk. So this was the impact study in which patients either received the aromatase inhibitor or anastrozole or tamoxifen or a combination of the two for 12 weeks, and then they went to surgery. Um, but in a multivariable analysis, analysis, they found that a higher KI67 expression after two weeks of endocrine therapy was associated with a lower recurrence-free survival, while a, high, a higher KI67 at baseline was not. So this suggests that if you give someone endocrine therapy that as early as the two-week mark, if you see that KI67 is knocked down, then that suggests both that they're endocrine responsive and that they have superior long-term outcomes as well. So this approach is being looked at at some ongoing prospective studies as well, and has been looked at as, um, for example, for combining endocrine therapy with CDK4-6 inhibitors, and that's been shown to suppress KI67 as well. 
Um, but one issue with this, of course, is that it requires an on-treatment biopsy. And I, ideally, we'd have something easier to look at that didn't require patients to go through an additional biopsy just two weeks after starting therapy. Um, so this is some work that's been done here at MGH, and um, you heard about this from Dr. Haber earlier. Um, so this is um, looking at CTCs during pre-op therapy to see if that can help uh, predict res residual disease or not. So we had a cohort of 54 neoadjuvant breast cancer patients here, and we assessed them for CTCs up front and during, th uh, during therapy using a 17-gene digital RNA signature of CTCs that, were, that was developed in the Haber lab that you heard about earlier. So in general, in this cohort, the baseline CTC score was positive in 43% of patients, and that did tend to correlate with higher burden of, of disease. And we found that patients with a high CTC score at cycle three or later were significantly more likely to have residual disease. And this was based you know, on a blood-based biomarker instead of having to do an on-treatment biopsy. Again, this is very early work, um, and a lot more has to be done before this could be applied clinically, but I think efforts at blood-based biomarkers are important, um, especially to spare patients additional unnecessary biopsies. And lastly, thinking about the optimal outcome. So we've spoken quite a bit about PATH-CR, but it's really, as you heard, probably not ideal for all ER-positive breast cancer patients, while it is a very reasonable outcome to look at for triple-negative breast cancer and HER2-positive breast cancer. So one alternate is um, the residual cancer Burden. And this is a score that involves considering the primary tumor bed, uh, the percentage of cellularity there of remaining cancer cells, and also considers the remaining in situ disease. And it looks at the number of lymph nodes involved, um, including the size of the largest MET, and it comes up with a, a score based on that. And it's been shown, so you know, one other issue with PATH-CR is it's really an all or none phenomenon, either you achieved it or you did not, but as you can imagine, there's a subset of patients who may have a really great response, but not a complete pathologic complete response, and those patients still do much better than, say, a patient who experiences hardly any response at all, and this is where the RCB is really helpful. So an RCB of zero is, correlates with a PATH-CR, while an RCB score of one uh, reflects a patient who had a near um, pathologic complete response, while RCB two or three are patients with more significant residual disease. And in the figure here, the yellow line represents the RCB score of one. And it's been shown actually across different tumor subtypes, including hormone receptor positive breast cancer, that um, those with an RCB score of one still have uh, significantly improved long-term outcomes compared to those with more significant residual disease. So I think this is a score that's being um, used more and more in clinical trials now, but still is not standard of care to assess this, though a lot of pathology departments are starting to routinely use this on their reports. And as clinicians, we find it quite helpful and often ask for it now. And one reason we ask for it is um, to think more about what do we do with those patients who do have significant residual disease. So um, in one respect, there's a lot of focus on de-escalation strategies, right? If a patient has a complete pathological response, we can use that to help scale back um, the therapies they get, perhaps in the adjuvant setting. But and thinking about the opposite group, um, can, what escalation strategies can we use for patients who do not have a good response to pre-op therapy? Um, so this is the best example that we have so far of this, the CREATE-X trial. Um, this was really a post-neoadjuvant adjuvant study in which patients, uh, both triple-negative patients and ER-positive patients who had received pre-op therapy, it, it took the group of them who had a residual disease and randomize them to either six months of capecitabine or standard of care. So standard of care for triple negative patients would be, at that time, not, no additional therapies. Well, of course, for ER positive patients would be to move on to endocrine therapy. 
And somewhat surprisingly, the trial showed that both five-year disease-free survival and five-year overall survival were significantly improved in the group that received adjuvant cape cytobine. And these results were really entirely driven by the triple negative subset, in part because, of course, um, endocrine therapy, as I said, plays such an important role for the ER-positive patients. So this has now become standard of care and has also increased our use of pre-op therapy for triple negative patients as well because for the first time ever, we now have something more to offer them um, outside of a trial in the adjuvant setting. This also changed the design of many ongoing clinical trials. So it's suspected that capecitabine probably isn't the best or most exciting agent for triple negative patients probably a, a platinum or this ongoing studies looking at immunotherapy will probably prove to be more helpful. But because of this, the control arm in all of those studies has become using six months of cape cytobine. Um, so some conclusions. So uh, we discussed that adjuvant really equals neoadjuvant in terms of long-term outcomes, but many, there are many additional benefits with the neoadjuvant approach uh, from both a clinical and a research perspective. Um, the achievement of a pathologic complete response is highly prognostic on a patient level, especially for triple negative breast cancer and HER2 positive breast cancer. An upfront use of genomic assays such as Oncotype may help identify appropriate candidates for neoadjuvant chemotherapy among patients with ER positive breast cancer who, as we discussed, have the options of either chemotherapy or endocrine therapy. And overall, PCR rates are too low in ER positive breast cancer to serve as the primary outcome for clinical trials and other options such as the RCB score may be more suitable. And lastly, hopefully I've emphasized that the new agent model provides an efficient, efficient trial design for assessment of novel therapies and the identification of predictive and prognostic biomarkers, including circulating biomarkers, as you heard both from this talk and a lot more from Dr. Haber earlier. And I'd be happy to take any questions. So Laura, th this has been uh, explored extensively for um, breast cancer. Mm -hmm. Where else does it apply? Head and neck, for example? Um, induction therapy. Yes, so called. we were actually just dis discussing that a bit at our new patient conference with the fellows earlier. And you know, I don't do much head and neck oncology. I don't know if anyone here does. But from what I understand so far, induction chemotherapy in head and neck so far hasn't looked so good. Um, it does not yeah. mean that it can't be helpful to assess things like novel yeah, therapies and biomarkers. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, I think it's mostly induction. Uh, it's chemo radiation that's yeah. used primarily. That's yeah, which we don't. Um, there's been trials of that in breast. Breast cancer hasn't used chemo radiation up front, has they it? They have in trials and occasionally if someone's inoperable, but in general, yeah. no. Although it is being looked at, you know, in trial settings a bit more, especially in combination with immunotherapy. I think we'll, we'll see more in that area. Mm -hmm. Any any novel combinations now planned? Is CDK moving up? Uh, yeah. Into? So in general, you know, once something, once an agent looks both efficacious and safe in the stage four setting, the next place it goes in, in breast cancer is the pre-op setting first, for all the reasons I described, because you can assess it a lot easier. Um, so the CDK4-6 inhibitors have been explored. Um, so far, it doesn't look like they are increasing past CR rates a whole lot, but we are seeing um, KI-67 suppression, though it does seem when you take them off that that KI-67 can shoot up back. again. So it seems important actually to perhaps perform the surgery on the agent if it's safe to. So I these see. trials are all early, but um, they've looked at PI3 kinase inhibitors as well yeah. and really a variety of novel agents. What about the antibody, the, uh, the antibody, dr antibody drug conjugate that's now so interesting? So ME132, which we'll hear about um, yeah. later. Um, so there are neoadjuvant trials planned, but they haven't started yet with that agent. Okay, good. Mm -hmm.
And the message is that uh, for anybody out there with an active drug against breast cancer, uh, th think about neoadjuvant uh, trials in terms of your portfolio, because that's where it's going. Okay, thank, thank you, you very much, Laura.